What does it mean to be modern? And what is modernity anyway? I'm Ryan McDermott, host of Genealogies of Modernity, and I'm here to tell you that it's complicated. No, just kidding. In this show, we get a bunch of academics to actually venture answers to some really tough questions. What is genealogy? What are the sources of racism and anti-racism? You might disagree with our answers, but you can find them on Genealogies of Modernity, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. As You Like It is one of Shakespeare's most beloved romantic comedies. Like many comedies, it ends with marriage. Lots of marriages, in fact. But the play is also, as we discussed in episode one, Shakespeare's most extended exploration of sex, gender and identity. Dr Will Tosh, research fellow and lecturer at Shakespeare's Globe in London, explains that we miss the play's point if we let the conventional comic ending erase all the questions the play has posed along the way. So we have the boy actor playing the girl Rosalind who plays the boy Ganymede who plays the girl Rosalind. It becomes very hard to unpick those layers and of course that's the point. So you have an extraordinary multi-layered milfoy of gender and identity and performance. My sense is that the greatest mistake one can make about As You Like It is to regard it as a, a fairy tale or a fantasy or something sweetly inconsequential, just about kind of love and romance. Not that those things are ever inconsequential. This is a really substantial comedy of ideas and of people and of how people relate to one another and indeed how they relate to ideas. And if there's a sense in which its its construction, its, its makeup is artificial in the most literal sense, as in kind of artful and to do with construction the meaning is nonetheless really, really quite serious. The play's construction is key to the way it explores serious questions. What does it mean to be a man or a woman? Where does your identity as an individual come from? The play raises these questions by subverting the typical structure of a comedy. One of the things uh, someone coming to us you like it perhaps for the first time might notice is that the structure of the play is is not what they might expect from other Shakespeare comedies, which are certainly before As You Like It, tend to be um, motored and kind of powered much more by, by plot uh, and by incident. Instead, what you find in As You Like It is a kind of quick, slow, quick rhythm. So we have what seems like a thousand things happening in the first act where brothers fall apart, murder is planned, a young woman gets exiled from the court with her best friend and cousin, drama, 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 and then stillness. And then a flurry of activity in the final act as well as things get resolved. Actually, what Shakespeare seems to be doing is thinking about a structuring principle based around juxtaposition of idea and character and theme. The scenes in As You Like It are created by juxtaposing different personalities, moods and qualities and using the contrast between them as a means of emphasis. The play combines court and country, reality and myth, male and female, 
truth-telling and disguise, love and exile. And one of the most extraordinary combinations is the Forest of Arden itself. The forest is drawn from all kinds of sources. There was a real Forest of Arden in Warwickshire, near where Shakespeare grew up. But the forest also originates in literature and myth. We hear that in the forest, the Duke and his men live like the old Robin Hood of England and fleet the time carelessly as they did in the golden world. The story of Robin Hood is an English legend. It concerns a a virtuous outlaw who takes to the woods in order to rob from the rich and give to the poor. And even in the 16th century, he was already emerging as a kind of iconic representation of, of a past Merry England who stood for a sort of different and better set of values to the present. The golden world, the golden age, that goes back to to Greek mythology and and, and describes the kind of first stage of humankind on earth. And, you know, very much analogous to the Garden of Eden. It's a sort of time of abundance uh, and peace where men and women lived in nature and among the natural world without any need to toil or labour But just as Shakespeare combines these different traditions to create the forest setting, he also combines the utopian notion of a natural paradise with less idealised social realities. The Duke's forest community isn't exactly a utopia of equals. It's not really a Robin Hood idyll. And when the Duke, in his first appearance on stage, the exiled Duke, extols the kind of sweet life of rustic simplicity uh, that he and his his courtiers share, we shouldn't forget that he has a a, a troop of forester servants who keep him fed and warm and clothed and stop him feeling the kind of winter wind and uh, and the, 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 the the sharp pang of cold. The Duke declares that life is more sweet in the forest and that he finds good in everything. But Elsewhere in Arden are poor farmers like Corin who do feel the pangs of hunger and who don't find forest life quite so sweet. Shakespeare constantly combines opposing elements in this play. Jaquees's melancholy is poised against the couple's mirth. When Touchstone wants to marry Audrey to satisfy his desires, Jaquees urges, Get you to church and have a good priest that can tell you what marriage is. Representing love as something significant and spiritual in opposition to Touchstone's focus on the physical. But in another scene, it's Jaquees who denounces love as the worst fault, while Orlando defends it. Through all these conversations, Shakespeare puts together different ideas and points of view. In combination, each perspective reveals its strengths and shortcomings, and we're invited to evaluate it afresh. So we've got our point of view. We've got city and country, romance and melancholy, fantasy and reality, pursuit and seduction, youth and age, male and female that the thing that keeps the audience member engaged, the reader engaged, is the fact that Shakespeare is so careful not to take sides. And eventually it becomes clear that what seem to be binaries and contrasts are not so binary after all. And the whole point of them being balanced opposite each other is that we're being invited to think about intermediacy 
and to think about the messiness of those boundaries. It's to show that no one gets anywhere by thinking too strictly about X and Y and yes and no. We have to think about the mix of things. One of the key binaries that the play calls into question is the opposition of male and female and the idea that male-female pairings define the scope of love. In As You Like It, there's a sense that love and gender can take on entirely new forms. And that isn't really something that's just an invention of, you know, the past kind of couple of decades. In the 18th century onwards, the allure of the play was based in the fact that it seemed to do interesting things to people's ideas of gender and then what femaleness was, what maleness was. And audiences really enjoyed those, that kind of roller coaster that the play takes you on. This roller coaster comes partly from the play's pastoral setting. For centuries before Shakespeare, pastoral literature had explored different kinds of romantic and sexual relationships. The pastoral mode is a poetic, literary um, style that dates back to the Greeks and Romans, to to poets who used a fantasy of a a kind of countryside idyll to locate um, uh, 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 romantic stories of, of... desire and seduction amongst shepherds and shepherdesses, and sometimes shepherds and shepherds and shepherdesses and shepherdesses. Pastoral becomes a sort of hugely popular mode in late Renaissance England, so sort of mid-16th century onwards, because of its Latinate classical connections. But it also offers writers a, a sort of decorous classical literary context with which to explore sex both heteroerotic and homoerotic. And I think for some poets, the most attractive thing about the pastoral form was its convenient and deliberate gender indeterminacy. Those Latin poems, the Virgilian antecedents, included loads of poems in which the lover is a humble country shepherd and the beloved is a beautiful shepherd boy. One of the most famous shepherd boys in classical mythology was named Ganymede. This beautiful youth catches the eye of Zeus, the king of the gods, who carries him up to Mount Olympus to be his cupbearer and, in many versions of the story, his lover. The name Ganymede, along with the Latinate names Silvius, Corin and Phoebe, clearly signals that the play should be read in this pastoral and mythological context. Shakespeare is working in a very established mode, but he takes it into a sort of giddy world where anything goes. And I think this is Shakespeare acknowledging absolutely openly that the pastoral form is one of the conventional places in early modern English culture to articulate same-sex desire. That giddy sense of anything goes is captured in the play's title, As You Like It. And one of the most head-spinning things about the play isn't simply that it might contain same-sex desire, it's that gender itself becomes something fluid and unfixed. Gender too can be as you like it. Now, Rosalind isn't a man. The whole point is that she isn't a man. Uh, But in her wooing of Orlando as... Ganymede the boy, Shakespeare is staging a recognisably homoerotic seduction. And, and all the more so because, of course, Rosalind 
as Ganymede is actually boy actor as Rosalind, as Ganymede, as Rosalind. So at any moment in the play, Orlando's partner could be seen as really a woman because it's the female character Rosalind, or as really a man because it's the male actor playing Rosalind. Both possibilities always exist. And there's a strong sense that Rosalind herself chooses to become Ganymede because of the new possibilities the role affords her. It's not entirely clear why Rosalind remains as Ganymede, other than she just really likes it. The freedom and power she gets as Ganymede is completely intoxicating. And the way it seems to work for her in wooing Orlando as well, I think, seems seems hugely intoxicating. But I think what happens is that Rosalind embraces the prospect of self-determination and independence in her male guise because this gives her the chance to push her agenda forward, to actively woo. For aristocratic young women like Rosalind, there would be certain expectations around romance and marriage. Men were supposed to court women, and women were supposed to receive men's advances. If the woman wasn't attracted to the man, she might be obliged to accept him anyway if her parents told her to. And if she was attracted to the man, she wasn't supposed to say so. Shakespeare is looking into and he is destabilising apparently secure contrasts. And in this case, it's an apparently secure contrast between assertive masculine romantic behaviour and dutiful feminine receptiveness, which I think Shakespeare is throwing up in the air and saying, let's look, let's see how it lands, because almost certainly it doesn't land in the way you think it's going to land. And Rosalind is an extremely good example of what happens when you mix those categories up a little bit and give different people the power to control the destiny of their relationships. When Rosalind meets Orlando, she seems simultaneously to feel the weight of traditional gender roles and to want to resist them. When she parts from Orlando, she says, "'My pride fell with my fortunes.'" I'll ask him what he would. She recognises that a proud or self-respecting woman is supposed to act aloof, even with a man she likes. Rosalind can't resist going back to Orlando, but she still has to pretend to follow the convention of accepting the man's initiative, not taking the initiative herself, by going to Orlando only as if obeying an order from him. Did you call, sir? she asks. When Rosalind becomes Ganymede, though, she can throw off those conventions and order him to do what she wants. Come, woo me, woo me, she tells him during their courtship game. As Ganymede playing Rosalind, she can take control and tell Orlando to pursue her. Playing Ganymede also allows Rosalind to express the full range of her personality. Like the play itself, she combines all kinds of different qualities, including qualities that jar with conventionally feminine traits like delicacy and gentleness. Pretending to be Ganymede might start off as a convenient disguise, but ultimately it allows Rosalind to become even more herself. We might think about the play as being about kind of exploring contrasting qualities and asking about how 
absolute those distinctions are. And I think harboring contrasting qualities seems to be her superpower. She can be cynical, like Jake Wees. Um, uh, um, she says to Orlando, uh, men have died and worms have eaten them, but not for love. You know, she's, she can be completely kind of hard-ass, if, you, if I can use that expression, uh, um, uh, about things. And she can be really dismissive, like Touchstone of Orlando's terrible poetry, but she is 100% earnest, super earnest in her love for Orlando. It is an absolutely profound and, and, and very important relationship. If this relationship is so important, we might wonder why Rosalind continues to pose as Ganymede with Orlando when she could just reveal herself to him. Why does she ask him to play this wooing game instead? It's partly, I think, to do with testing, metal testing. And I think there's something about Rosalind's embracing of the kind of agency and power that comes as, as, as Ganymede to get to the kind of truth of, of Orlando, unencumbered by the kind of traditions of, of male-female wooing. Orlando's poems on the trees are full of the clichés of love poetry, which suggests that he starts off loving more of a fantasy of Rosalind than Rosalind herself. As Ganymede, Rosalind can offer Orlando a more realistic picture of herself and of love and see if his love persists. She can also test how compatible they are, especially in conversation. When he first encountered Rosalind as a fine lady, Orlando was too nervous to speak. When he thinks he's with another man, he's able to start joining Rosalind in the kind of witty exchanges she loves. That's another reason for the wooing game. It might simply be, as the play's title suggests, that they like it. But there's also perhaps just something that suggests pleasure. And I'd be, I guess, kind of most interested in thinking about the joy and the kind of the thrill that both Rosalind and Orlando feel in wooing one another when Rosalind is Ganymede playing Rosalind. And that's an approach that I think often proves the most beguiling for modern productions, where productions recognise whether or not Orlando knows it's Rosalind. And I think it's probably more interesting if he doesn't. But I think he recognises that there's something profoundly kinky and cool and sexy about what he's doing uh, and what they're both doing. There's all kinds of new insights and possibilities and pleasures that this gender-bending wooing game can offer. But that also suggests that there might be something lost when the game ends. At the conclusion of the play, Rosalind appears as a woman once more. She is married to Orlando and Celia, who had such love for Rosalind that she declared, Thou and I am one, is married off too, to Oliver. Both men are granted land and status by the Duke, so that the women leave their lives as shepherds and are folded back into the hierarchies of the court. The audience is left to wonder whether any of the liberty discovered in the forest, the freedom to speak honestly, the escape from restrictive gender roles, whether these things will persist in these apparently traditional marriages. It's a sort of closure 
in a, into a world of respectability that I think the play is kind of ambivalent about, actually. I think, you know, Shakespeare is, well, very hard to classify in a single word, uh, but I think some of us, I include myself in this, are guilty of ascribing a radicalism to him that isn't necessarily always there. And I think the exploration of gender and sexual possibilities that As You Like It offers doesn't set out to upend the world. And I think the ending of the play and the kind of closure of the play brings us back to patriarchal norms in a way which is quite final. And often I think modern productions slightly struggle with because of the joy and the and the fluidity and the wit of most of the play means that actually the kind of heteronormative ending is a bit of a downer. Of course, the marriages aren't exactly the ending. If the four male-female couples seem to stabilise gender identities, the play's epilogue seems to unsettle them once more, raising again all the questions that the play asks about gender and identity – the questions that have made the play so exciting and thought-provoking in the centuries since its writing. Unsurprisingly, you know, this play has been a kind of lodestar for people thinking about questions of identity and queerness in the early modern period and identity and and gender and queerness and performance in modernity uh, because of the way it seems to put everything up for discussion in terms of how men are supposed to behave, how women are supposed to behave, what a man is, what a woman is, what it means to be indeterminate and the kind of power and potential that can accrue in not taking those categories for granted and asking questions about them and pushing the boundaries of those categories. In the next episode, we'll look in more detail at some of the speeches in the play in order to see exactly how Rosalind pushes those boundaries and to explore how Shakespeare's writing works to profoundly disrupt our conventional ideas about gender. Gender.